please pronounce your name correctly for me? My name is Gellir Judith. We use it in a different order, so that's why I pronounced it not like Judith Gellir. We use in Hungary a family name first. I would tell you that I'm very happy with my name because it sounds international, so I didn't have to or don't have to change it like a lot of uh, famous Hungarian photographers or artists who change their names sounds more international. I tell you a few examples. Lucien Erwe, who is uh, Erkan Laszlo uh, in Hungarian, or there is Robert Kappa, uh, whose name was Friedman Andre, or there is André Kertész, who is Kertész Andor, or from the film industry, there is Michael Curtis, who was Kertész Mihály. So I'm happy with my name. <laughs> I must admit, I had no idea that like that was a thing that people specifically, I guess this sounds like a Hungarian thing, or is this a, a sort of Eastern European thing? I don't know if it's an Eastern European thing, but very common in Hungary, or it was common in the last century. And uh, maybe because there were a lot of immigrants who went to Western Europe, and that's why they changed their names. Well, I recently found out by doing family lineage that like my last name is just D-O-L-S, but it's supposed to have the umlaut over the O, and when my, my relatives immigrated from Germany to the United States, they just removed it. Yeah, it was uh, the same with my family. They also changed their name in 1900. Yeah, so more than 100 years ago. <laughs> yeah, it was like 1920 for my, like my great-great-grandparents. But I'm thinking about bringing it back. I'm like, that umlaut looks cool. Like, I've, I think it's a neat, you know, own my heritage kind of thing instead of, uh, you know, the Americanized version. But I'm afraid then I have to pronounce it differently. Wouldn't that be like Dulce? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Dulce. I don't know. Hmm. Anyways. All right. So now you are a curator, a writer. I even saw a poet in there at one point, as well as a professor. Is that correct? Do I have like sort of your, your credentials down? Well, I would say educator instead of professor, because uh, I do three things parallel. One is uh, curating, one is teaching, education, and the other one is that I'm a researcher because I'm doing my PHD studies. I will finish it this year. So this is the great things. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, knock on wood. Yeah. But okay, well, let's jump right into that then. I saw that part of your PhD work is about uh, archives, artists' archives and using archives and this kind of stuff. I love the idea about archives. So like, tell me more about like, just like what your research is specifically so that I can then ask more in like specific questions basing on your expertise. My thesis is specified on the Hungarian art scene in the last 30 years. 
And I deal with this because using archives or artistic archives are well known and there are a lot of literature and there are a lot of exhibitions and it was researched a lot. But uh, there was not um, a complete research on this phenomenon in Hungary. So that's why I started to research Hungarian private photo archives and artists who are dealing with these kind of family pictures, family albums or vernacular photography, I would say. In the other hand, I realized that there was a digital turn in 2000 or around 2000. So I started to research how vernacular photography has changed by this digital turn and how artists reflect on this digital turn. So this is um, a complex topic I researched or I wrote on. Yes, that's a very complex topic. Okay, but wait, go back just for vernacular understanding kind of things. The term vernacular photographs for you, does that mean the same thing as a private archive? Uh, Well, yes. If you start to read about it, then there are a lot of uh, different terms for the same thing. So I use, I prefer using private photographs because it's a bit huge or wider selection than if I only say family photographs. So I say family photographs are part of private photographs. So this is how I try to definite it. Right, because like there's a balancing act. Because like on one hand, when I hear the term private collection, that could either be just a, like a private person or family who collects, let's say, photographs, or like naughty intimate photos like private boudoir photos kind of thing so like for me when i heard it i I was not perfectly clear on exactly what you meant but adding in the sort of sense of vernacular and family photos it makes a lot more sense so basically it's just any photos that any person or family takes in their lifetime is their family sort of archive or private archive yeah, this is what I was uh, dealing with, mostly with the family photos and those pictures that we have in this uh, family album, I would say. There is also if someone going for fishing and catches a big fish, so they have plenty of this type of photographs or they photograph or we photograph our dog or cat or something like this. It's also a part of this term. <laughs> Well, I've actually collected these over the course of my life. I I buy old photo albums at flea markets and antique stores and things like this. When I can find a beautiful book, the book itself, and then there will be like an entire family's photo albums in the book. And obviously somebody either passed away or they ended up in the trash or whatever. And then I sort of sort of took them in and I've been protecting them basically until somebody can figure out who they are or I can manipulate them and use them in some sort of artistic idea for myself. But like, these things often end up in estate sales and people they just in the trash or in flea markets and i find that to be an incredibly sort of sad state of affairs because then they get detached like so like all the stories that went with those we have no knowledge of who any of these people are or even where this album came from 
and in some ways I love that, but in some ways it's very sad. Yeah, there is. A, I don't know if you have uh, heard of Fortepen. This is, especially in Budapest, we have um, a trash removal campaign. In these events, we can throw out a lot of trash into the street. And then next morning, they come and pick it up and, and remove it. In these times, there are a lot of photographs, photo albums thrown away. There is a guy who is Miklos uh, Tameshi, and he started to collect these photographs and digitize them, scan them, and he created a website, a digital archive, an online archive. And uh, you can search in this archive, you can download and you can use the images as you wish. So it is an, an, an important and very interesting archive. It has a timeline, so you can search for an image um, from the 30s or 40s, and it stops at 1990. And what's the web address for this? It's fortepen.hu. That's the kind of thing I always sort of wanted to do with my collection because I've been sort of collecting these kinds of vernacular images for decades. I mean, I've even got daguerreotypes and all kinds of stuff and tintypes and amber types that I've been collecting. And it's this interesting thing of like, in some ways you want to connect it back to the owner, but in some ways the mystery is also a beautiful sort of thing in and of itself. Cause you're like, why is this person so proud? Why were they dressed up that day? You know, like all these kinds of great stories. And I mean, I love them. You're saying now people can now use them. So like, where does your research fall on this whole idea of these, of these archives? Should they be made public? Should they be accessible to people? These are good questions. Because um, in one hand, if you are an artist and you are starting to use this archive and you don't know who is on the picture, then you just see a figure, you just see a picture. But if you are a relative or if you have a family member on the picture, then you will act totally different. So, yeah, these are good questions. It is also an interesting thing that how researchers are dealing with this archive or dealing with these kind of pictures and how artists are dealing with this. So this is what I'm very much interested in because we researchers are trying to make rules and borders and uh, trying to make categories and so on. And then artists will come and they are just ruin <laughs> all these boundaries that we try to hardly definite a thing. And uh, then they're just doing something very tricky. All the definition is gone. Well, that is kind of our role in society, though, is to like just fuck up the systems. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So I'm I'm very happy with it because artists, uh, most of the time I, I like talking with artists about this topic because they have um, a very creative ideas uh, that make a, a turning point on my research because I, I just didn't think about something and it's so easy for them to say, oh, why not? 
Okay, just to be clear, so I, I'm, I'm just before I ask some additional questions, I want to be sure I'm understanding correct. So you do research into sort of vernacular and family photos kinds of archives, not let's say like the archive of a famous like Robert Kappa, like his archives. So like you're more private, what, what you call private archives versus sort of individual artist archives, correct? Yes, correct. That's too bad. I had lots of questions about artist archives. Yeah. Um, so I deal with three things. One thing is the types of vernacular photography. Which is a great question because like, uh, I'll be honest, like I never even heard the term vernacular photography until I was sitting in a meeting. I don't know. What was it? Probably seven years ago now of an art historian. And she starts throwing around like blah, 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 vernacular photography, blah, blah. And I'm like, what the fuck is vernacular photography? And then she, of course, educated me. And now, and it, it is, it's very vague. I mean, it, it could pretty much encompass any photograph ever taken that wasn't, let's say, for money. Yeah. So it's hard because not only amateurs taking these pictures. Can I say to a picture that was made in a photo studio by a professional artist of my family and me, is it a vernacular photography or is it an artist photograph? So that's why I prefer to use private photograph. Okay, so, so your guidelines are if a professional quote-unquote photographer created the photograph it is not a vernacular image well yes uh no <laughs> yes and no I was say, that's really hard because because i know lots of photographers who also take pictures of their own personal lives kind of thing so like that could easily be vernacular so like okay keep going because you're educating me so you tell me <laughs> well if i want to definite then i deal with photographs that are in a family album, that are in a personal photo album. Because these pictures, most of the time, are kept in secret, at home, in the cupboard, in the shelf, or in boxes. And we don't want to exhibit them. We don't want to show them in newspapers and so on. This is one thing. I, I deal with. And the second, hmm? yeah. Okay, wait, I have a question within that. Is it like that whole sort of realm of vernacular photography? Is it just the images or is it then also the photo albums, like the books and the materials? Because, you know, through the years, the, it, like in the old days, it was horrible, acidic, uh, either beige or black paper. And then it got to those like magnetic things with the clear, the clear thing. And then people glued them in and then there were photo corners. And then, and then now, of course, they're digital prints, not like, you know, silver gelatin or old, you know, seep color prints from the seventies. They're now actually digital images that are being put in there. Like there are just so many archival catastrophes waiting to happen simply because of the materials being used, whether, you know, depending on the book design, the book style, the format. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've gone to a flea market or an antique stop and there are some beautiful images and they're like glued into the thing, which drives me nuts. Yeah, I know some artists who are collecting these kind of images 
and uh, they are also angry <laughs> with those people who glued them or who put them in the trash. And uh, they want to save these images. They want to keep them alive or they want to deal with it to have a new life, I would say. I visited Budapest and, and I there's a beautiful flea market. I don't even remember the name of it, but it's like way outside of town. I want to say south of town on near the river. And there's some guy there that sells like thousands upon thousands of glass negatives. Like, I mean, just you could sit there for days just going through this, buying glass and look, just even looking at all these glass negatives. It was, I was in heaven. It was absolutely magnificent. Yeah, it is. It is. But the, what I find interesting is, is like Budapest seemed to be the only place throughout my travels through Europe that I found that really had more or less like it sounds bad, but like thrown away a lot of their photographic history. Like there was a lot of it on sale in a way that I didn't see in many other countries. So like, why is that? I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, okay. I thought you might have um, some insight into that. No, honestly, I don't have um, an answer for this. Maybe we took a lot of photographs. I don't know. It's quite possible. Yeah. Okay. So anyways, back to definitions of vernacular imagery. Yeah. So I deal with these kind of typical or archetypical images because there is a saying, I have the same picture, only it's a different kid. So everyone has same picture of his or her childhood, her marriage, the big events like Christmas and so on. So we have the very much same types of images. And in the album, if you open up an album, there are only very few types of albums because one of them is chronological and the other one is thematic, maybe. So... For example, I'm very happy because my father made a family album and he wrote down who is who. And, and I know everyone from my ancestors because of this. And he also drew the family tree there. So, yeah, it was a huge work and I really appreciate that he did it. Yeah, my parents are getting older and recently I found like three shoe boxes full of photographs that were not even in albums and I start showed them to my parents and I'm like, so who's this? And they're like, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Like that could be a friend of somebody. Like, So I put everything in into photo albums and I said, great, here, they're in photo albums now. Now, now write everything you know about who these people are in the photo album because there will be a time which might already be that they don't remember who these people are and once they pass like i will have no idea who these people are because like they didn't write it down this whole sense of family lineage through photographs to me as a photographer is very important like and it's not to a lot of people like a lot of people just throw away old family photos and disregard them or don't write things down because like i even tried to explain to my aunt my aunt was like well why do you want all these family photos and i'm like because it's our family history and if you don't write down like your childhood memories of these images, those memories will be lost forever. So like, if you don't put that effort in now, 
it's gone because nobody else has those memories. And she's like, oh, I guess that makes sense. And I'm like, (laughs) (sighs) yes. So I'm on Mm -hmm. your side. I'm a big advocate of sort of cataloging all these things. When you do your research and all your work, are you working with families who still own their family things so they can give you information or these ones that have been thrown out? No, I I only that with a theory at this part of my dissertation. So I only read and look and talk. The second part of my research is how researchers deal with or dealt with these kind of images. Because in Hungary in the 1980s, there was a researcher group who collected contemporary photography, which was in the 80s. They made some publications on and um, some conferences and talks. So I asked them how they researched. And the third part, which is the most important of my dissertation, is contemporary artists who are using these images somehow. So, for example, there is the work of Marcel Esterházy, who scanned an image of an old woman lying on the bed. And so he scanned and uh, printed it very large, one meter times one meter, and exhibited it. And the title of the image is Found Grandmother. He started this work as a collection. So first he found this image and then he started to collect other old ladies. And because he didn't know his real grandmothers, that's why he said that, oh, these images could be of my grandma. So that's why he had the title Found Grandmother. It's an interesting balance because like, On the one hand, you could sort of say, like, these artists are appropriating other people's work in certain ways. On other hand, these are images that more or less sort of fall, as a U.S. terminology, sort of into the public domain because they've been thrown away or they've been discarded. So therefore, the original owner has no interest in them. So that's a difficult sort of balance of, like, is it really that photographer's work or is it just simply that they were able to sort of just see something beautiful in somebody else's work and then just sort of recontextualize it as their own? Well, I just love appropriation. I love appropriation oh, okay. art. Yeah, I, I love it. I'm very much interested and, and keen on it. And uh, there are a lot of questionable things, but I think the single image they use or the found image they use is an artifact but when they are starting to doing something with it cut it or enlarge it or print it or make a different order of them then it became an artwork for me the original pieces that they are using are not artworks but after they are doing Sometimes very small things, only just turn them 90 uh, degrees or, you know. (laughs) Yeah, to me, that's not enough. No, 
but I agree. Like if they, if there is there, there's an old term in the United States. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's what was told to me by my professors, which was as long as there's a distinct and unique artistic difference from the original, then it's no longer appropriation and it is it's its own art piece. And and I like that definition, even though it's horribly subjective. <laughs> Yeah, but it's good. It's good. I like it. It is a good definition. I like it. But again, it, it's horribly subjective because like if if somebody were to bring a court case and says, hey, you're using this picture of my relative inappropriately, or I want money from your art sales because that's a picture of my relative, that it depending on what judge you come in front of depends on you know how the, that court case will go and their subjective interpretation of something like that. And that's a, that's sort of unfortunate. Laws should be a little bit cleaner than that. Well, there is the whole documentation of Richard Prince's uh, case, so you can read I how knew the Richard Prince was going to come up with this. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so the whole documentation is there. What the law said, and what an artist said, and what the original photographer of the image said about it. So yeah, sometimes you can lose, sometimes you can win with this gesture. <laughs> well, Richard Prince uh, to me is a little bit different because he changes. He takes a photograph and makes it into a painting. Like so, that's something. I'll give him that. But that's not enough for me. I mean, if it still looks exactly like the original photograph, then that's not enough. Well, with his new portrait, I'm thinking, oh, that's that's not a painting. That's only an enlargement. Oh, yeah, he, do, he did that at one point, yes. But these days, I believe he's doing paintings. Like, the last thing I saw of his was paintings from Instagram posts. But th those are not paintings. They're not paintings. No, he what he did. Uh, he used an account, Richard Prince Four, and then made some comments at Instagram, and then make a screenshot with his iPhone, and then enlarged the images into poster size. But those were screenshots from Instagram, as far as I know. Not painted them. You know, you learn something new every day. All right. <laughs> Hold on. I'm I'm actually looking up a little bit. Yeah, okay. Him. Okay. <laughs> I mean, well, I'm trying to remember what I what I saw that made me think that. Yeah, they are just screen. Yeah, those are just screenshots. I agree. Yeah, and uh, and he said that with each of the images, he commented something, and with this comment, he said it was the authorization of the image <laughs> that bastard <laughs> no i don't think he's a bastard i mean i i respect him for his desire to like push the limits of like what yeah. is what do these laws mean what is appropriation the problem i have with richard prince is that he's making millions off of all of this like yeah if he was you know if he was just doing it and maybe he split the money with the person who made the original the image like then i'd be like dude you rock i like you you know you're you're i respect you highly for that but because he personally is making a shit ton of money off of it and not sharing it with the original person who created the photograph i kind of have a problem with that yeah 
yeah, you are absolutely right. And uh, that that was why the law started to examine this case, because uh, the original photographer said the same. Prince said at one point that uh, he made this photographer more famous, so now his images will get higher price. So yeah, yeah, that, that that I have a problem with that too because like that's like a I've had you know countless over the course of my career where somebody goes oh come take some pictures for me because it'd be good for your career no fuck you that never works <laughs> that that's just somebody getting away with free whatever free work free effort all this kind of stuff like I hate how society has come to the point where they believe that they can just take advantage of photographers in that way. Like they just think because we're all so desperate that like we'll be willing to do any of these things because people seem to think that it will benefit our careers. Going back to Richard Prince, like, okay, Richard Prince did all those things. I don't know any of the photographers <laughs> that, that he copied. Like I have no interest in any of those photographers. So like his theory that that helped their career is a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, you are right. You are right. Okay, I don't know. I don't know if their if their nickname is there on the screenshot, but you are absolutely right. Yeah, he's he's just using it. But he also points on the fragility of our images that we upload on the social media. That is also a big problem that we are not dealing with. Most of the time we are just taking a selfie or taking a picture, an image, and we put we upload it on, on Facebook and Instagram. And this is another thing that I deal with, how these private photographs, vernacular photographs, has changed. Most of them became visible for those who are using social media. So this is an important change as well with family photographs. If you have a baby born, then his or her image is full <laughs> on Facebook. I've never sort of subscribed to that kind of stuff. Like I rarely ever post what I would call like personal photographs up on any sort of social media. And I think obviously I'm sort of unique in that. Maybe it's a generational thing with my age. I don't know. But I just, I don't want people knowing that much about my life. If there's somebody that needs to know that much about my life, they're my friend. And so they actually you know, probably saw my photo albums or I showed them to my phone or on my computer. But like to the idea of like sharing all, all of that information, like on the one hand, it's kind of weird to just be like, Hey, the random people who I've never actually met that are quote unquote, my friends on Facebook and Instagram, like here's pictures of my, what I ate for breakfast or my baby or what, who the fuck cares? Like that, there, there's a certain amount of that, that I'm just like, no, I refuse to do it. But there's also the other side of it is like, we are giving away all of that data, that information, the location, the GPS of all the embedded data that's inside those, all the metadata in the images to Facebook and Instagram, which I guess now technically is, what the fuck is it called now? Meta or whatever company it is now. Yep. But I mean, I don't like that. Like I even was afraid at one point. <laughs> 
this shows up my paranoia at one point like when apple came out with that thing with the thumbprint to unlock your phone i was like yep. i don't want to give my thumbprint away to them i mean they could like frame me for murder i mean they now have my thumbprint like like that's a thing <laughs> people get like accused of murder for you know fingerprints it's a very slippery slope of like just giving this stuff away that is eroding a lot of things because it also changes the nature of like family photos were meant to be for the family and now suddenly family photos are for public consumption and that's a cultural shift that's happened in my lifetime that i'm not sure i'm super comfortable with <laughs> yeah exactly one of the things that i realized the researchers from the 80s when they started to make categories of the photographs they were looking at the images and making categories like this uh, or from the images from the motifs that are on the image but today if you are for example a facebook user then facebook has some live events so they are telling you to upload an image of your newborn baby or of your quitting a job or your whatever life event you have so they just generate you or they just make you, force you to make images and upload images on these live events. It's, it's very interesting. Yeah, I refuse to do the live events. I mean, this, this podcast is edited and, and it still sounds like I'm an idiot. So I, I'm certainly not doing it as a live event. Yeah, there are very much different tactics and strategies what artists are using on social media. So we have Facebook for 20 years now, I don't know, 15 years, no. whatever, no, 10 years, I don't know, I don't know. So maybe we have it for 10 years now, for sure. And it has changed our mm, social oh life. Oh my gosh, it's 18 years. Yep. Wow. Okay, I just searched it. All right, go on. So it changed our habits. It changed our social life. It's totally different how we deal with it because uh, if you have a lot of friends, Facebook say friends, but few of them are colleagues or sometimes work, free time and family is just mixing up in that virtual space. So you really have to... Think of what you are sharing with who and uh, how do you share or how do you use this? Because don't forget that Facebook and Instagram is a company. They are using you to work for them. So you also have to make a trick or you have to do a tactic against the strategy. So you have to make them also work for you. Well, and that's the angle that like I have a problem with. It's like there are things. Um, there's a game, a uh, Fortnite, the the online game. Like I was playing that for a little while, and I started thinking about. It. I'm like, this company, for all practical purposes, to play it is free. Of course, you can pay for upgrades and all kinds of things like this. But like to play it is free. But they are receiving millions, if not billions, of people who play this game 
their different tactics of like strategy and war and battle and all this. I mean, they could take these different you know varieties of like successful tactics and and bad tactics and then turn around and sell these as like battle plans for war and for uh, you know training of all this kind. Of, and I'm just like. You know, it's it's like the old it was well, not an old saying, but it's like the saying, which is basically if you're not paying for the service, you're the product. Yep, exactly. You know, like I mean, to a certain extent, like Instagram and Facebook, like to a certain extent, they're be, I'm sure that they have a massive uh, facial recognition database that I'm sure they're working with the the governments and the police and all the kinds of things to sort of accumulate and figure out, and it's just like. We're giving all this stuff to them for free and like it, it's going to come back to bite us in some way, I'm sure, sometime in the future or already. I'm not sure which. <laughs> yeah, but the most important thing is to be clever. Do explain, please. <laughs> be clever and use it as you wish to use it. So this is what I was trying to tell that use it for your advantage yeah there are some disadvantages and you have to share a few things for that share only what you feel like to share and use the advantages of it so for example social media is is good for advertising to share your experiences to share your knowledge so for example i use facebook for learning and for sharing information with my friends most of the time we use a facebook group with my students as well because that is easy to use sometimes we are using messenger just to keep in touch well but i find that like social media, the problem that I have with it is not necessarily like the uses of it, but it's the speed of it. It, it. There's this immense increase in the speed at which you should be engaging with it that I find artistically to be too fast, basically, like, because like, you know, artistic practice, artistic trial and error, artistic, you know, mistakes and failures and all these things, they take time to sort of work through and all this kind of stuff. But yet, if you're not posting a new piece of art on Instagram, at least once every two days, you're you're not very productive. And I'm like, my current work, my current work right now is taking me six to nine months to complete one piece so like, <laughs> yeah, I can't keep up with the speed that they're expecting. And so it's things like this that I'm not a, as huge a fan as I should be because I feel like, you know, great ideas, great art, things like this, they take time. And whereas the, the, the social media and the internet is sort of compressing time in a way that's encouraging us to basically produce a higher quantity of things, but not necessarily a higher quality of things. Yeah, you, you are right, because these algorithms and these programs are for making us addict, to be addict of them. So, for example, I, I just went off from Facebook for one week and then it started to write me emails that your friend has shared the photograph. Don't you want to take a look at it? 
So no, I don't want to. That's why I came over it. <laughs> so this is how it makes us, yeah, addict, addict of it. And you have to create your lifestyle, create your your daily schedule to be there or not to be there. Sometimes when I realize that I use social media too much, then I just take an e-detox, we say, when you are just leaving your phone at home and go for hiking and enjoying the nature. That is real life. (laughs) So you have to work on it. You have to think it over and over. What is your relation with social media and what is your relation with those people who are working with and playing with and spending free time. So who are those people on the social media and who are you in real life? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I've got nothing else to say about that. Yes. (laughs) That's it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's it. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's really sad. It's, yeah, let's try and get on a more positive note. You said that you work with contemporary photography and or contemporary photography archives. Is that correct? I deal with contemporary photographers who are using archives. All right. Because I have this like longstanding conversation that I keep trying to learn a little bit more about, about like estate planning and archiving and like, so like as a practicing artist living sort of like, what should we be keeping for archival purposes after we pass away? Sort of estate planning kind of things like as a researcher, what do researchers want as far as the materials? Like, cause like I'm sitting here with like all my journals and my notebooks and like all my old negatives, like, do you need all that shit or can I throw some of that away? It's a very hard question, especially because my father was an artist. And now I have to deal with all his heritage, with all his notebooks and artworks and um, and everything. Right now, I, I say that I don't want to throw out anything. I want to keep everything. And then at one point, you, you just have to make decisions that is it really important or is it not? My working method is that I'm always asking my friends, researchers, art historians, other artists, what do they think? Should I keep this or should I throw it out or where should I leave it? Because there are different museums, there are different galleries, different institutions. So who wants what and where can I bring or put or give this or that? So, for example, I gave all the paints to his students because they can use the paint and paint a new picture. Or I gave a few of his tools to his colleagues and then it makes them remind him and they can make another artwork. But, uh, yeah, it is a big question. It is a big question also for the museums because... Yeah, a lucky artist has his uh, artworks in different collections, in private art collections, in institutes, and in museums as well. So if you have an oeuvre, then all the pieces are in different spaces. 
then it's uh, it's harder if you only had the rest of them. So these are the pictures that no one wanted to have. Yeah, this is a, a big question. The most important thing and uh, what I have learned from my father is documenting. Making your own archive, document all the things that you are doing. So, for example, I have a website. This is a blog. When I finished my BA studies at uh, the University of uh, Moholinaj, we had to fill in a form, write down your name, the title of your thesis, the abstract, and there was um, a box for your website. And I said, oh my God, I don't have a website. So I just created very fast a blog. And it was more than 10 years ago. What I am just doing is that I keep archiving my activities there. I use it for a document. And uh, if you have a nice CV, for example, or a nice portfolio, then you will have everything in one document or in one, one space. And that is very helpful for the art historians, very helpful for the researchers who are wanting to deal with your artworks. Well, that's the thing I've run into, which has sort of created a little bit of anxiety in my mind, which is that it was told to me by somebody who does estate planning that for artists that the idea is basically artists should keep as much as possible as far as physical, tangible things. So like bad works of art, journals, test things, like everything, anything that they can physically keep. I mean, obviously, you know, space limitations, you know, are an issue and all that, but like keep as much as possible because if there's no additional context for an artist after they pass away other than just their art then there's no ability for researchers to learn about that person as far as the researching which is what's going to then lead to that artist becoming known after their death maybe even known more after their death so maybe they're undiscovered maybe they were like medium successful in their lifetime but it's only through that access and ability to find additional resources and information that will make it so that potentially somebody might research them so therefore then they become quote-unquote sort of known uh, after their their passing and that just makes me so anxious i'm like oh my gosh i need to make sure to keep everything so that like my children will then be able to like have a good life because i, I i'm gonna make it so that i'm able to be researched well so that they can then sell my work after I'm passed and all this like there's a line to like how much of that stuff should we really keep so like it's a very nerve-wracking sort of like oh my gosh should I keep this because maybe somebody will think that this is some amazing insight into my artistic practice after my death like or should I just go ahead and throw it away because I don't use it anymore that's hard it is. I have a story. Once I worked with a woman who was uh, doing restoration of a ceramic design that was made by Viamo Joanai. This guy was a ceramic designer, but also made a lot of experiments with the, the materials and colors and so on. Once this woman uh, started to research, because she just didn't know what material could this be. And then she find a personal letter 
it seemed that he had a girlfriend in Vienna. So in Vienna that time, there was a kind of paint that he may used for this one. Uh, she knew this only because of that love letter. So you can never know what will be important or not. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's. And, and those are the kinds of beautiful connection ideas that I think in some ways are like the beauty of creating like an estate plan of like keeping all of these things. Like I've got far too many things probably at this point, but I have whittled down over my lifetime and there, you know, it, it's the, how much do you keep? Like I even got now that I've started, like, cause I didn't even think about this until I started this podcast. And since then people have been talking about estate planning and I'm just like, Oh my God. So like now I'm to the point that like, if I use a piece of wood and it has like a sticker on it that says like the price and the company that made the wood and all that, you know, I'll just leave it there because that's sort of a, a it, that's, it tells the, the art historian who's going to see it after I die where I was when I made that piece based on where I bought this particular piece of wood. Like I'm getting so stupidly obsessive compulsive about this. Yeah. So it, it's a little bit the same as what you share on your timeline, what you keep, what you want others to know about you. A little bit. I mean, like I knew this guy, I knew this guy, I can't remember his name. I went to undergraduate with him at the Corcoran and he did these pieces. He did, I, I'm not even going to get into trying to explain his work, but on the back of his paintings, he just came up with this totally arbitrary set of words that he would write on the back of his thing. Like he would put like Corolla, autumn jill like i mean just literally random and he would tell me he said well it's the car i was driving the time of year the girl i was dating at the time like just totally random words and i said why do you do that and he's like just to fuck with these future art historians <laughs> yeah <laughs> just like oh, okay. <laughs> there are some people that do it intentionally to fuck with people all right. Now, beyond all of these great things about archives and, and estates and all this, you also are a curator. Yeah. But but where are you a curator? Because I've seen different things listed on the internet. Uh, well, I just left my job in December. So I started a new one this January. I sort of thought that by what I was reading, yes. Yeah. I worked at uh, Copper Center for nearly seven years. That was enough. So I was looking for some change. I was um, looking the for... seven year itch that we all get in nonprofit work. Yes, I know it well. <laughs> I just needed a change, new environment, new people, new knowledge, new kind of research. So right now... I'm a contemporary curator at the Museum of Ethnography. So, and it's, that's uh, fascinating. <laughs> it is. It is for me as well. Well, first of all, do me a favor. Define ethnology for me. Just I have what I believe is the right definition, but I have a feeling you're going to tell me something completely different. Well, it's um, we could say a synonym. It's cultural studies. And uh, I will I will deal with visual culture, photography, individual culture, or in the contemporary culture. 
and specifically Hungarian? Well, in the first time, yes, I think so. But I just started it. I have some intentions and plans, but we will see how it will go on in the, in the future. You can never know when you start a new job, then everything is new and nice. And you will see how can you manage to do all your plans. Because that's one of those things, like there's different kinds of curators choose to do different things. Some curators I know absolutely love being independent curators and sort of working wherever and doing whatever topics they want. Whereas some people choose to, like they want to go in the sort of more what I would consider traditional curatorial path, which is going and basically finding a full-time job at an institution as a curator. So like, is that your sort of career desire is to sort of build a career? based around you know institutional work or are you more of the independent minded and you just needed a good job right now i wanted to work in an institution that is not a gallery not a commercial gallery so this was important for me and that's a huge difference yes it is so that's why i was looking around at these institutions in Hungary. There are not a lot of them. And there are not a lot of uh, job offers in these institutions. So I was lucky with this one. And I always do things in parallel. So I always had a job, a proper job. Next to it, I teach, I make exhibitions, I talk with artists or I give lectures on photo history or doing portfolio reviews and so on. In the last, I don't know, more than 10 years, I always had a proper job, a part-time job or a full-time job. I was lucky that they let me doing other things that is not part of the institution. Yeah, I mean... For me, the tradition was always that the desire was to be a curator at a museum or an institution. Like that's the sort of goal of being a curator in my mind from 30 years ago when I was young. Like that was the career goal. But it seems like a lot of that's changed for a lot of people. A lot of people don't want that institutional job, which I find a little crazy on the one hand. But on the other hand, the amount of bureaucracy and the amount of time and meetings and like what I would personally consider like the painful parts of doing curatorial work uh, are very much part of the, the job of working at an institution. Yeah, it's true. I think it's the same everywhere. Sometimes you are lucky enough that you have a curatorial assistant or a project manager who is doing these paperwork instead of you, but that would be a dream job. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I would love almost any job if I had an assistant to do all the shit I don't want to do. <laughs> yeah, true, true. Yeah. All right. So now then moving back to contemporary photographers using appropriation, because that's your specialty. How did you come to the, you know, out of all of the different scope and range of different types of contemporary photography, come to the point of saying appropriated photography? That's my specialty. Okay. So my father was an artist. And... You mentioned um, that. 
which yeah. I would love to hear a little bit more about that too, but go on. Yeah. And um, he used uh, different mediums, graphic design, typography, captures, paintings, movies, sounds, and so on and so on, and some some photographs as well. When I told to him that I, I will apply to the University of Mohlinaj, then he said, that's a bad idea and you won't get in. And um, I said, okay, but I, I want to try it. That's not very supportive of him. <laughs> no, no. So it's a long story and it's another story, but um, we made fun out of it. At MoMA, we, we call it, we use it uh, MoMA. Uh, it's a shorter name for the university. We had a class with Peter Puklus, and he showed his photographs. They were personal images, uh, images of his friends, family, and people who were lying in their beds or having their breakfast and so on. And I was very much surprised. It was 15 years ago. I asked myself, why isn't these images are in the family album? Why are these images are on the wall? Why do we call this art? What is the difference between amateur and professional? So how can I say from a photograph, if I only see an image, if this is an artwork or if this is not. So these were my questions 15 years ago that made me dealing with appropriation. So it's a long story, but this is how it became my interest. I, I want to hear more about this because I still have that question because there are lots of artists these days that do you know, sort of, we could easily just say, call it like vernacular images that they present in a fine art context. And oftentimes I will look at them and be like, why do I want to see like pictures of them just hanging out as friends or their family? Like, why is this an art piece versus something that should be in the personal family photo album? I wonder that quite frequently myself. So what resolve have you come up with? Well, there are philosophers who are much more clever than me and wrote books about what is art and when is art. So I used their theories. One of my favorite is Arthur C. Danto, who was an art philosopher, and he wrote a book, The Transfiguration of Commonplace, or something like this in English. I'm nodding my head like I know what you're talking about. I have no idea what this book is or who this person is. It's okay. Go on, though. Okay. He, he was American analytical philosopher. So it's a kind of mathematics that if you add a lot of things together, then it equals art. No shit. Wait, I love this. <laughs> There's an actual mathematical equation. I have been looking for this for decades. <laughs> Yeah, okay, we need the artist's intention to make an artwork. We need an artifact, an object, or an image. We need an institution, and we need curators. We need audience. We need 
reflection. He calls it aboutness. It means that the artwork reflects on, on itself. It reflects on its questioning what is art. It reflects on the medium as well in the same time. So these are the pieces we need. And then it sounds easy. <laughs> no, those sound like the most difficult things ever. But the two that I pick up on, which are the ones that like I'm the most sort of fascinated by in the art world itself, is the curators and the institutions. Because this is one of those things like there's the there's so many artists in the world that like they make amazing artwork. Okay, so like, let's just go off the idea. There are some amazing artists that make amazing work, but if they don't get their work in front of certain curators or accepted or acknowledged by certain institutions, they will never be known, they will never be famous, they will never get whatever form of success they desire kind of thing. And that I find to be an incredibly unfortunate part of that, that equation because, you know, it's basically removes merit, like so like good quality work because of those two factors of an institution sort of acknowledging it and a curator acknowledging it which i actually would put even add another one to that these days which is a collector acknowledging that the work is worthy to be collected kind of thing so like that's an additional one i would throw in there without those it kind of makes it so like merit has almost nothing to do with it because like if you're a really well-connected person or a good schmoozer or a good like promoter of yourself and somehow a curator and an institution likes you and likes your work, you could be elevated even if your work is not magnificent. One thing is that Artu Sidanto is not talking about which artwork is good. This is my next research question. What is good? what works and what not works great question yeah because uh, i did a lot of portfolio reviews for me being a curator is a hard work it needs a lot of responsibility because you are working as a filter you have to make decisions on okay this is good this is okay, this is not good. I like the term, this has potential. <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not there yet, but it has potential. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> yeah. If you work harder, maybe. But yes, so yeah, that, that nature of like what the role of the curators, the portfolio, I love all this. Keep, keep, keep going. It's great. Yeah. The key, I think, in the artwork at Word is education and knowledge. Because if you see a lot of artworks, if you read a lot about it, if you talk a lot with other artists, then you will feel. So a lot of time, you always have to trust your instinct and your inner voice. Because if your inner voice says it's some that's for so it's fishy, then it won't work. If you feel that something is not good, then the audience will see that it is not working. If you feel like that okay, it's it's good, and you ask ten more 
people about it. So as a curator, I asked two kind of people, I would say. One kind is a researcher, art historian, so those who are professionals. And I also asked people from the street who are not dealing with art. So what, what do they feel? Because uh, sometimes when, when professionals believe in an artwork, but it gives nothing to the audience who will visit the exhibition, the museum exhibition, then it's a question. I don't know. So for me, success is a win-win situation. When the artist is satisfied, the institute is satisfied, the visitors are satisfied, and you are also happy with the whole thing. That's a hard one to achieve. It very much so is. Like I have this long-standing problem in my exhibition history. I will put up an exhibition and I will have like one piece that I think is like that's the piece that expresses the series the best. It's the key piece that sort of ties everything together. And then usually during the exhibition, like, oh, hey, there's this extra space. And so I just throw up some other like sort of secondary piece that maybe wasn't like the primary series, but just because I needed to fill up the space. 99% of the time, that one that I threw up at the last minute, everybody loves that. And the one that I put up as the like the centerpiece, the masterpiece in the center of the exhibition, everybody's like, yeah, it's okay. Hmm. I don't know if it's just like I'm a bad editor of my own work <laughs> or what it is, but like I seem to oftentimes get it horribly wrong to my detriment because I have not as much as I should probably or obviously by that story worked with enough curators to sort of help with this process because that's something like in America, you know, when I was coming out of school 20 some years ago, it was not common to work with curators as young artists kind of thing. And so like I got in the habit of not working with curators. Now, since moving to Europe, I have found that working with curators is almost a mandatory thing. And I love that. I, I wish that had been the norm from the get-go because we as practicing artists often are either too close or even sometimes too far away from a set of work and we don't know what's going to connect with viewers or, as you said, the viewers, institutions or curators. We don't know. But you all as curators, who which I love, uh, sort of are that sort of go-between that you listen to the artists, but then you also listen to the public. You listen to the researchers, you listen to the institutions. So like you all have a little bit better context for how things work and how things fit together and how things place more so than necessarily we as artists do. Or I shouldn't say we, me. I'm horrible at it. I don't know about everybody else. <laughs> well, in the last uh, seven years, I made... 35 exhibitions it was very much different with with different artists and there are very different attitudes for the curators as well and it's also different when you work on a solo exhibition or in a group exhibition but let me talk about only solo exhibitions so there are some artists who need curator because 
they are not sure on if it is a good editing or or not a good editing. There are some who want nothing but the institutional paperwork from you. They don't want you, so they just give the floor plan and, and that's it. So they bring in the artwork and curate their own exhibition and it works. So it's okay. I agree with their decisions. Sometimes you you are working together with the artists and you have a lot of discussions on which image to come, which image to go. And uh, this is what I really like to do. I always like to talk with the artist because sometimes I'm not involved emotionally into that photograph. And the artist, okay, but I've been there. I kissed the girl there. Okay, that's right, but I cannot see on this bad picture. <laughs> so that's why you have to say that I think it is not okay if we exhibit this image or so. This is how we do the editing or the selection. And okay, one more. There are two types of artists, photographers, one of them who is working on 12 images and they really imagine how these 12 images will look like and they are working on these 12 images for a year or something. The other one has 300 photographs and we will have to select 12 from that one. These are different attitudes we have. I don't have um, proper answers. I always have questions. I'm always questioning my role because am I a part of this artwork or not? If I tell you, okay, use this image, you don't want to use, but I say, yeah, you you should do, uh, use this image. Is it a duo, an artistic duo? or not. I don't want to be part of it, so I always want to step back because it's you who have to make the final decisions on the edit. I can give you suggestions. This is my attitude. So I give you suggestions and you have to think of it. So that's why usually I work with artists for a year or more when we are doing an, a selection. Because you have to think of it, I have to think of it, what will be the final. And another thing, this is one of my favorite examples. Do you know who was the curator of the exhibition of Wolfgang Thielmans in Paris? No. No. Me neither. I know. The role of a curator is incredibly important, in my opinion, in the sort of ability to refine and edit a series of artistic works to make it presentable to the public, let's say, you know, in some um, relatable or acceptable sort of order or sort of placement or whatever it is. Again, I'm thinking a book or and or an exhibition, but they get no credit whatsoever. <laughs> Like in the end, they get no credit. Nobody ever goes, oh my God, that magnificent exhibition that was curated by so-and-so. Like nobody remembers the curators. It's a thankless job in many ways. But 
But we as artists, like I, as I say, I wish I had known that that relationship of finding one or, you know, potentially like in my mind, the sort of the perfect thing would be to like, as a practicing artist, if I could find like three curators, let's say, just to make it easy, like one in Europe, one in the Americas, and then one somewhere else in the world who appreciated your work, liked your work, worked with your work, whatever, you know, included you in exhibitions throughout the, their locations. Like that is like the perfect setup as an artist, like if you could find that. But boy, that's really hard to find. Because, I mean, it's just like every other part of the art world. And again, like going back to my mistakes in my career, which I'm hoping that through me sharing them, people are learning from my mistakes. In my youth, I was a pretty much little arrogant shit. And I thought I knew what was best for me. I'm like, this is the series I want to produce. This is how I want it hung. I was sort of a control freak. And I was like, no, this is what it has to say. Fuck you. Like, I'm going to do it my way. And it, it doesn't work. The arts industry across the board is very much about relationships. It's very much about working together. The artistic practice of creating a piece of work, that can be a solo thing. So like, let's say I'm a painter. I go in my studio, I paint a thing. But once it's done and I want to put, bring it out into the public, it takes you know many, many people for that to then reach whatever it needs to be reaching. So it takes a curator, a gallerist, a collector, a, an institution, I mean, like endless numbers of different relationships and people to take that thing that maybe was done as a solo thing, but then you need a community, a peers and networks and whatever to like then get it out in front of the right people to the right places. And nobody ever told me that. So I thought it was all about me and, and very selfishly and egotistically thought that like I can make this happen. And it's not that way. It, it, the curators are a necessary part of this entire system. Yeah. Being kind is as important as being brave and creative. <laughs> well, sadly, being yeah. kind is, is almost as necessary as being talented oftentimes too. <laughs> Because there are a lot of like mediocre, let's say to high mediocre artists that get lots of great opportunities because they're nice to work with. Yeah, it is. It is important. The personality is always, yeah, big role. In the other hand, if work of curators are well known when they are doing group exhibitions, so, for example, there was the exhibition of Okui Anvesor. It was titled The Archive Fever. And everyone knows his name, but who were all the artists, we don't know. Because the concept of the exhibition was so great and remember of, of that one. So, on the other hand, there are some other kind of curatorial work as well. And uh, most of the time, it it based on on big research and a lot of knowledge behind all right well let's try and wrap this up now i know you do portfolio reviews and so you're and you're a teacher as well so you're often looking at new stuff what are some things that like younger artists should be doing better 
than they are doing. You know, it could be anything from editing of work to artist statements to how to present themselves, like something that you run into that like a lot of people seem to do wrong. I do portfolio reviews also, and there's a series of things that I'm just like, I wish I could just like give them a piece of paper before we start saying like, here, don't fuck these things up. (laughs) So start with like after this. Okay, one thing is to speak English. It's very important. Really? It's very important. Okay. And the other thing is when you are going to a portfolio review, then it is a beginning of a conversation. And you should not force the curator or the editor to present your work. Because if he or she likes it, he will choose it. So that is very important because a lot of times when I did portfolio reviews, they said, okay, when will I have my exhibition? And, um, okay, (laughs) let's start it again. (laughs) Because for me, portfolio reviews are about making connections knowing people you just don't know when will you have an idea oh i saw that artwork in i don't know in al or in Butch or, or in a festival and i would love to work with him or her it is the same for the curators as well so that is important to yeah don't force <laughs> don't force it just have a nice chat have a nice conversation and Try to tell all the important parts of it. Or even if it's a personal part, if you have a story behind it, then personal stories are very strong, I I think. I mean, if you have a picture and you have an interesting story behind, then don't afraid to share it. That's lovely. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, too. Before you go, we would like to thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. We would also appreciate it if you would share this podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, or studio mates, anyone with an interest in the arts and creative industries. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community, both today and in the future, is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can listen and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.